Psalm 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. There are a number of other places we're going to go this morning. You might just want to note those down. We're going to move quickly. But we're going to spend the lion's share of our time in Psalm 13. Let me read Psalm 13 for us, and then um, we'll begin to walk through this. It opens up, and the psalmist asks the question. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I was going through this on Wednesday night, and I, I told my, my, kind of my preview group, my Bible study, you know, it's a difficult psalm because it, it's seeking to, to answer the question of, what do we do when we just don't hear from God? And somebody said, well, this is, this is a really terrific uh, psalm for a Mother's Day passage because it really sounds like raising little kids. How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then especially when you get down to the last little bit, uh, my enemy will be exalted over me. Uh, thinking of kids, and uh, it's not intentional. It is an accident, uh, so to speak. And so, but as we look at this psalm, recognize this is what it does. This isn't a psalm to address what happens when we are caught up in sin, what happens when we are suffering from bad choices. What he's describing in here is the scenario that if you are a Christ follower for any number of years, this is going to be true of you. As you grow in Jesus, as you grow in faith, as the gospel begins to, to invade increasingly in your life, as it's taking over more and more, and you find yourself surrendering in increasing measure to God, there will come a point, there will come a season when you pray, and this is what you hear. There will come a time, there will be a season when you read his word, and this is what you hear. Nothing. Silence. And what this psalm does is equip you with the vocabulary to communicate to God, to describe that situation, and then it shows you what our hearts need to look like in response to that situation. But there's something distinct that we have to make sure that we are just rock solid on before we enter into this period of desolation, this period of non-response, or we will find ourselves so incredibly shaken that our temptation will be to walk away and say, whoa, I can't handle this. This is too difficult. God, I, I'm really in a difficult situation. I'm really struggling emotionally. I'm really struggling with my job. Where are you? We have to be sure that we understand something so incredibly uh, profoundly and picking up right after where Jesse read in Ephesians 1, we come to these verses in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So he's describing, this is what it's like. In Jesus, 
when you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel by submitting in belief in Jesus. This is what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you respond positively to the gospel and submit in repentance and belief to Jesus, you are sealed with his promised Holy Spirit. There is no period of non-response perceptively. There is no difficulty that you encounter. There is no doldrums within your spiritual faith that can remove you from God's hand. Why? Because you are sealed with his promised Holy Spirit. Notice that the sealing isn't on the basis of the veracity or the strength or the powerfulness or the potency of your claims. He doesn't say you are sealed because you fell there on your face and everybody saw how profoundly you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are sealed because of his Holy Spirit at work in response to your profession of faith. And this is who the Holy Spirit is. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until when? Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God saves the Christian to the uttermost for all times. Amen? And so when we encounter, encounter difficulty, when you're going through it in the natural kind of rhythm of your life and you're praying and you feel non-response, when you're reading your Bible and, and it feels like it is just empty to you, you're not getting anything out of it, this is not necessarily an indication that you have sinned against God. And so certainly what we would do in those situations is begin to ask the question of, have I sinned against God? And if in that situation you come through it and you say, look, I don't have any unrepentant sin in my life, but I know that I'm a liar and I know that I'm especially good at lying to myself. And so I turn to my spouse, I turn to my friend and I say, look, I'm, I'm well adept at lying to myself and others, but I'm really investigating myself and I seem like I'm in a place in a period where I just don't hear from God. I feel distant and remote from God. Would you inspect me? Would you ask me hard and difficult questions? And at the end of that time, your friend says, look, we've investigated your life. We poured over all these details. I know more about you than I knew before. Some of those things I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, but I see no outward sin. I see no inward rebellion in you. It could be that God has purposed to take you through this time of incredible difficulty. And Psalm 13 answers the question of why. So, but the Psalms is still gives us this perspective of what it's like for us in our hearts when we don't hear God respond. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. God's going to get back to you. He's got a long call sheet. Don't worry about it. God doesn't always work his emails back to zero at the end of the day. He's not compulsive like you are. He gives us this, this full, unadulterated, raw picture of what it's like Look at how he asks this question. He asks it four times in four different ways. He starts and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Sometimes in the midst of, of praying and not hearing from God, it is from our perspective and our perception to think that things are never going to change and it's always going to be like this. We're going through an especially difficult time. We're struggling emotionally. We're struggling physically. We've lost our job. People around us are suffering. And when we pray to God, we just feel like we just don't hear a response. 
And so from that place of non-response and from this place, this perception uh, from our perspective is that there's some type of relational fracture that you need to be undergirded, you need to be supported, but you're not getting any of those things from God. It feels like it is forever. It doesn't feel like a short time at all. This doesn't feel like there's something just trivial and light and it's easy to go through. In the midst of this, it feels like it may never end. And the the psalmist gives an indication of this is something common to humanity. It's something that I go through. It's something that if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ for long enough, that you will go through. So he doesn't feel remembered by God. But this is really an indication that he doesn't see God acting in his life. There are things going on that he's praying and asking God to move and intercede, and he doesn't see God encroaching upon those areas. He doesn't see God rectifying those. He doesn't see God making those things right. In essence, when he prays, he just thinks that God is just kind of off doing something else. Because when God remembers, it is tied to his action. And so in his suggestion that God has forgotten him, he's saying, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you at work in my life? It's devastating. He turns and he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, God's not up in heaven playing some colossal game, some cosmic game of peekaboo. He's behind a cloud and he's just saying, you can't see me. This isn't what he's describing. God's face is tied to a reception of his blessing. It's tied to a reception of his blessing. So what he's communicating to us is, is God, you have forgotten me. I, I don't see you acting. But God, you're hiding your face from me. I'm not able to behold you. I'm not able to encounter you. The blessings that once seem to flow freely in my life, this, this perception of receiving your, your grace seemed to be just kind of the warp and woof of my life. It was the ebb and flow of my life. Now I don't see it. Now I don't notice it. Now I have no idea where it's gone. God, what are you up to? Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying to Aaron and to his sons, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. And look at this, verse 25. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. When God's face shines upon us, it is receiving his blessing. But there are times in our lives that this is just what it feels like. It feels like that this is us right here, and God has just taken his hands and just removed them from us. We have no sense of his blessing. We have no sense of his grace and mercy. It feels like we are left and wandering alone. Now, in those moments, we reflect back on Ephesians 1, and we are reminded of God's provision for us. We are reminded that salvation has not been taken from us, but from our perspective, this is what it feels like. Your perspective is not invalid. It's not invalid. God is purposing something in you. But from the midst of that, we begin to recognize that there must be something wrong with me. Like I've ticked down through the list of all the things that I should feel bad about, and I do. I mean, I've called people and apologized to school teachers from the second grade on up 
for making funny faces when they turned around. Like, this is the level and the depth that I'm going to ensure that there's not some inward uh, rebellion or persistent uh, sin at work in my heart. And so we're ticking down through this list. We're asking people that don't even know us. We're walking up and saying, look, a guy in the back with the glasses, do I look sinful? And he says, no, but you're weird. And you're like, okay, well, let me apologize for that. Perhaps that was sinful towards you to ask and put you in this situation. I've made you feel less. And so now I've kind of engendered and I've sought to create the situation that I might remedy. But we recognize that in the midst of this, there's nothing that we're able to do to return this intimacy. There's nothing that we're able to do to, to end this feeling that God has forgotten, that God is hiding himself. He's no longer at work. His grace and his mercy no longer flow in my life. So what do we do? We begin to fix it. And so, man, we double down on Bible study. We double down on attending church. And in everything we do, in every effort we expend, what do we, what do we receive in the midst of this? Nothing. It's nothing more. And so we, we work even harder, and, and, and we return to even more effort, and we expend even more energy. And what happens? According to this, nothing. So what is God saying? What is God communicating to us in this? Isaiah had something interesting to say about this. He asked this question in Isaiah chapter 50, starting in verse 10. He says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Expecting that they would respond and say, this is me, this is what I do. So on the basis of that, he turns around and he gives instruction. He says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light. And he's talking metaphorically. He says, some of us walk around and we feel like we're in darkness. We feel like the presence of the Lord has been taken from us. We feel like his love and his grace and mercy is not at rest, is not at home in our lives. This is who he's describing. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In the midst of profound disappointment, in a feeling of abandonment, this is God's word to you. Trust in him. Rely on him. Everything in us cries out that we want to fix it. Everything in us cries out that we need to expend more energy, sleep less, work harder. Trust in him. Look what he goes on to say in verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. In essence, he's saying there's some of you that you're seeking to stir up emotion in your heart to replace the, the, the current lack of the feeling of God in your life. You're trying to engender something that you can't. You're trying to create something, and ultimately it is false. He says, walk by the light of your fire and the torches you have kindled, this you have from my hand, that you shall lie down in torment. Such a hard word for us. Many of us, if there's some fracture in a relationship, like you just want to get to the bottom of it. This is my compulsion to an annoying degree. Like If I feel like there's something going on, I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to solve it. So when I begin to apply this to my relationship with God, and, and I, I recognize, man, there's, there's, there seems to be some issue here. I don't hear from you. I don't see you moving in my life. I, I feel like you're just not blessing my efforts, like you're frustrating them to a certain degree. 
the hazard is to seek to engender some feeling internally that would remove this thing that God is trying to take me through. He has purposed to grow me through this phenomenon of not hearing from him and of not noticing his presence. God is at work. So we know he's not actually removed. We know he's not actually done these things. And we're given this instruction that we shouldn't be at work trying to engender false feelings and false emotions. But he presses on. Look at this last deal. He says, he says how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It could be, even in the midst of this time, that God will allow those people around you, these oppressors, to mount up and to bring persecution upon you. This, too, is not necessarily a sign of God's rebuke in your life. God purposes, he designs to use the people around you to bring you closer to him. And so he begins to cry out. In verses 3 and 4, we see the substance of his cry. Look at this. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Interesting to note that in the midst of this, this person isn't unfamiliar with who God is. He's not this remote and distant, this transcendent God. He is this eminently close, this ever-present God as he uses this personal name of God, God's name to represent his covenant faithfulness to his people. He knows God by name. He is close to him. And so from this place of being close to God, he begins to cry out, consider and answer me. Well, what does it mean for God to Consider us. The Lord speaking in Jeremiah 17:10 says, I the Lord search the heart, and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Do you see the vulnerability here in this prayer? That he's not just saying, God, I want you to do me a solid, I just want you to kind of pass over anything if I'm doing it wrong. He moves and he operates and he prays from this place of, of perceiving that he has done nothing to violate his relationship with God. And so he feels strong and secure and stable saying this, investigate me. Gaze intently at me. Search my heart. How many of us in this place this morning, when we have things present and active in our hearts and in our minds that our prayer to God wouldn't be gaze intently at me, investigate my heart, know me well, but it would instead be a plea for mercy. It'd be, a it'd be a plea to pass over. It would be a plea to excuse. But from this place of not sensing God's presence, from this place of perceiving that God's grace and mercy have been removed from our lives, he drives them all the way to this place of they've, they've done so well in introspection that they get to this place and they say, I am guiltless before you. Consider me. From this place, he turns and he says, and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. The depression and the difficulty has gone so incredibly far that it's beginning to affect them physically. So the Old Testament speaks of, of being light, having your eyes lightened, kind of receiving uh, vigor, receiving uh, energy back again, receiving some type of encouragement back again. To what end? 
He says, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. So he sees two likely scenarios. He says, look, I'm so far removed. I've received so much difficulty. Your hand on my life has been so incredibly heavy that I'm fairly certain that my enemy is going to prevail over me. My enemy is going to win. This is just what I feel. When I pray, I don't feel like you hear me. When I'm looking at my life, I don't feel like your blessings are evidence. I think the enemy is going to win over me in my life. I feel like the enemy's going to look at me and they're going to see my faith begin to shake. They're going to see me begin to move off of the solid foundation of you because it seems like it's not working for me. It seems like somehow the foundation, like I have shifted off of it, I've been kicked off of it, it's not holding me up. And so my enemies, the people at work against me, militating against me in my life, They are desirous to see this foundation shake, to see my faith be shifted, to be impacted, to be brought low. It describes a terrible state. Doesn't hear from God in the time of his life, in the time of her life, when they need it most. counsel any number of people that describe the same thing to me. But notice he's not describing somebody who's caught up in sin. He's describing somebody he's bringing close. It's this incredibly difficult thing that as you mature and grow in Christ, that in order to be used mightily by God, that he may have to take you through a time where he removes his hand of blessing and he removes his active presence in your life to where you absolutely feel like you're all alone. But this is what he does to a great many of us. And it is not to punish us It is not to ruin us. It is not that he's in heaven and he's just bored and so he's looking for somebody to inflict pain upon. It is absolutely for your good. It's for your spiritual blessing. It's for your growth in Jesus. And it's for his glory and his renown. So we come to this and we keep all of these things in mind And notice not once as he said, it's okay, it's getting a little bit better. Come through all of these things and he is wrecked, he is brought low. Look at verse 5. We recognize the answer to the question of what do we do in the midst of not sensing God's presence? What do we do in the midst of not sensing his grace and his mercy at work in our lives? Quite simply, we rejoice. We praise. We sing praises to his name. Look at verse 5. He says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
In the midst of all these things, in the midst of feeling completely undone, in the midst of feeling completely overwhelmed, we remind ourselves of God's covenant faithfulness to us in the sealing promise of his Holy Spirit at work in our lives. This is what gets us through. It's not this dogged self-endurance that says, I can endure anything for a time. It is a reliance upon God and who he is. Isaiah has an especially poignant way of describing God's faithfulness to us. In Isaiah 49, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have, <clears throat> have no compassion on the son of her womb? In essence, asking this question, can, can a mother who has nursed her child look at that young child and just say, you know what, you should go take care of yourself. Like, I'm really done with you being such a nuisance. I'm really done with you needing me so much. Strengthening it, Isaiah says, even these may forget. He says, look, it is possible for a nursing mother to look at her child and to feel nothing for them and to leave them abandoned to the elements. He said, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In the verse 16, listen to this. He says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You may feel lost and abandoned. God does not forget you. You may be depressed and overcome. God does not leave you. He's engraved you on the palms of his hands. And we are called upon to rejoice. We are called upon to worship him in the midst of that. And I can say it is the most beautiful and the most difficult worship that we could ever be called into the midst of. You come on a Sunday morning and everything's going well, uh, a day like today, maybe everybody around you, your family's gathered, the sun is shining. It's just amazing. You forget that tomorrow is Monday briefly, and everything comes crashing back down. And so it's just, it's just amazing. And, and you're in here, and you're sitting, and you get one of the more comfortable seats, and so you know that today is a victory. And you run through this, and then the sermon's wrapping up quickly, and you're like, Hallelujah! And I get done, and then we step in to sing a couple of songs, and you're like, this is my jam, I love this. And you're just, you're worshiping, and tears are running down, and you're like, oh, praise Jesus. It's fun to worship in those times. It is so delightful to worship in those times, when you sense the victory, when you sense the overcoming, when everything lines up, and all the events of your life are perfect. It's easy, and it's fun. But God designs separation. God designs this feeling of abandon to lead us into yet greater worship. So that our worship wouldn't be affected by bad weather, bad hair, errant kids, poor job conditions, and our health. So that our worship with him wouldn't be sullied or brought low by the externals or the internals of our life. God brings us to these things to make us true worshipers of him that are completely unaffected by the affairs of our lives. Why? Because they are founded on who he is, not what we're going through. So he comes to this last and he says, I will sing to the Lord. If you're just standing up here on a Sunday morning and kind of look out and the people that are singing, some of you are making a joyful noise in your heart. And I know this because your mouth's not moving. But what we see in this is his, his declaration that he says, I will sing. He's singing in difficulty. Why would we not sing in relative ease? God gives us at times of relative ease in our life 
to feel his presence, but he removes them so that he could make us true worshipers of him. Now look at the difficulty, lest you think, well, he's worshiping on the far side of difficulty. He's worshiping on the far side of these things. He's come through them, and now he's joyful that God has led him through these difficulties. It's the future. He says, I will sing. Why? Because God has dealt bountifully with me. Now, the tremendous difficulty of this is recognizing that when God brings difficulties into your life, he's dealing bountifully with you. When God allows your health to be ruined, he's dealing bountifully with you. When you are attacked by people in your life, God is dealing bountifully with you. When you are sorrowful and brought low, God is dealing bountifully with you. This is not an Old Testament concept. James leads us in the same understanding in chapter 1 in verses 2 and 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Every difficulty in our life, every encumbrance that makes things so incredibly challenging is an opportunity to worship and to praise our God. Amen? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He cries out and he says, I will sing. God gives us a beautiful opportunity to respond to him from the depths of despair. From the depths of despair and disappointment, what will your cry be? Will it be, woe is me, I'm a man of sorrows, woe is me, I am a woman of sorrows, or will it be, you have dealt bountifully with me, and I will sing. God gives us the difficulties in life to make us true worshipers of his great name. Let us pray. God, I'm thankful this morning that we have people in this room that this is their life. They are going through incredible difficulties. Maybe some of us haven't handled them very well. We're frustrated, we're mad at you, we're disappointed. I've got to pray that in this place, in the quietness of our heart, that we would confess those things to you. We would confess our frustration and our disappointment with you. We sense that you are not moving. We don't see, we don't recognize the, the blessings, the grace, and the mercy coming towards us in our lives like it comes towards others in their lives. Father, my prayer for them is that they would be encouraged, that they would reflect upon your steadfast love, and they would recognize that even in these difficulties, that you're dealing bountifully, fully with them. Only your Holy Spirit can accomplish that for them in their lives. So God, would you lead them in that grace and that mercy? And Father, this morning, we want to pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. And the difficulties of their life that they're going through aren't because you've removed your hand to lead them to be true worshipers of you. Be a God, over the course of their life, they've repeatedly pushed you off cast you far away. The touch from you they need this morning is that of salvation and of healing. 
Father, we pray that you be mightily at work in the heart of those that don't yet believe. That you would spur in their heart belief and that you would lead them to confession and repentance. That they would come to know you as Savior and Lord by crying out to you, Father, save me. God, would you lead us in worship as we prepare to sing again? Would you cause our worship to be infused and, and strengthened and invigorated by the power of your spirit at work in us to where our worship wouldn't be affected by our situations because our worship is being focused on you and empowered by you. So we, we submit these things to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.